Exodus chapter 13, verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped in Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pahiroth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say to the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed towards the people, and they said, What is this that we have done that have, had, have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariots and took his army with him, and took six hundred chosen chariots and all other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped by the sea at the Behirath in front of Baal-Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. And they feared greatly, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians, whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, 
the waters being a wall on them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them in the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen. And in the morning watched the Lord in the pillar of fire and cloud, looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hands over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, and all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Matthias. We give thanks for you and Beth and your family, not only how you serve the church family, but are a pillar in our community. Thank you, brother. So we've been studying this great story of redemption. If you think about really the, the thrust of this is about the deliverance of God's people. And you might be here today and you're thinking, you know, Exodus and I'm a busy person and it's the holidays. What does this have to do with me? Say, Scripture is helping us think about this deep impulse. Uh, that is what it means to, to really be free. And far from just being a political liberation, as uh, you know, some have only seen Christian theology making claims there, say it's so much more, it's about uh, being under God. It's about the freedom we experience when we are his people. So it's a dramatic rescue mission. That this is the big theme of the Bible, right? You can look at the Bible and say it's quite intimidating. You know, it's an ancient Near Eastern text. We just read some ancient Near Eastern towns. Um, what is it? Say it's one story. It's one story that, that God made creation good, that we've ruined it by our selfishness, and God has inaugurated a game plan of redemption through the Lord Jesus that he's buying back a people so he can be their God and we can be his people. So in a couple sentences, that's what the whole Bible is about. God buying back a people for himself. And remember last week, we looked at the 10th plague. Something profound happened that I just hit for a moment at the beginning of Exodus chapter 12. Uh, prior to this in the Hebrew Bible, the people of the God have been called Israel or the Hebrews. But you get to 12.3 and all of a sudden you have in, in my ESV, right, tell the congregation and then uh, 12.6, the whole assembly of the congregation. This is a very technical word uh, meaning community. Uh, in other words, there's now an established people of God who are, are being worked out of the world, right? That this is God bringing them out, redeeming them from bondage, and establishing them as his people as they settle under him. Now, as they're brought out, you see today that, that Pharaoh did not give up as easy as we would have liked. We would have thought after that dem de devastating 10th plague that he would have, you know, thrown in the towel, but not so. Uh, because what happens? The same thing that happens to all of us. Uh, he says, well, you know, what have we done? Our economy is ruined. 
uh, we've let our labor go, he kind of puts it nicely, that they're no longer here to serve us. Uh, what happens to Pharaoh? He said, wait, this maybe wasn't such a good idea that we've lost our labor. We've got to go get them back. And so he pursues after God's people are, are out. They plundered the Egyptians. Pharaoh is still at it. And so in, in another way, you could think of chapter 14 really is the 11th and final plague, a final deliverance of God's people as, as God redeems them and establishes them. Now, a lot of ways, you know, any, any passage in the Bible, I think there, you, can, you can faithfully preach it a number of ways. The way that I, I uh, thought to frame this this week is around the word uh, fear, how, how fear operates in chapter 14. So take a look, chapter 14 in verse 10, uh, the people feared greatly their circumstances, Then you have Moses in verse 13, who preaches to them, fear not. And then at the very end, uh, verse 31 of chapter 14, so the people feared the Lord. Can you see how that word operates, right? So there's a fear of the circumstances. There's the the sermon, if you will, to fear not, and then an appropriate to fear God. So let's frame chapter 14 uh, kind of around that question and how that applies to a, a church like ours. Uh, so firstly, what uh, kind of big, big picture thing, the first thing I think we've got to notice is how God's people here face, once again, uh, insurmountable odds. That we've read now 14 uh, chapters of this, and, and I, I feel every week I'm saying something to this effect, that God's people uh, can't free themselves that they can't liberate themselves out of, out of the predicament in which they find themselves. And never is that more clear than in chapter 14. Think of, put yourself there, how's Israel traveling? That they've just got all the loot from the Egyptians, so they've got the stuff on their backs. Um, they've got small children. Um, I have small children. I, I can't get through the Chipotle line with small children, uh, <laughs> let alone through the desert with all my stuff. I mean, they've got everybody. They've got the wounded. They've got the elderly. They've got the children. They, they've got, you know, like, as I said, you know, truculent animal. I mean, they are slow-moving. Uh, if ever there was, you know, people that are vulnerable, it's this slow-moving caravan called Israel. On the other hand, see, maybe you caught it. Chapter 14, the Egyptian chariot. The word chariot is mentioned at least a dozen times. Say, I myself experienced a bit of fatigue trying to calculate the word chariot. How many times in Exodus 14, the Egyptian chariot was a great weapon of warfare, the greatest weapon of warfare in the ancient world. And you think about this, you say it's not all that different from today about uh, foreign governments uh, boasting on a new weapon of war, right? I mean, we think of the German panzer or, you know, this nuclear uh, missile that's just been developed. A lot of countries say, you know, well, we have this great weapon of war um, that will, will, will give us the victory. That's the way the Egyptian chariot was in the ancient world. So you have this mighty weapon of war. It was, uh, you know, could move at high speed. It was very intimidating. No greater force on the world than the Egyptian chariot. And you see that these Egyptians, you look down at 14.3, for Pharaoh will say to the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. That little line that there, Israel's absolutely shut in. That uh, Luther commentating on these uh, verses, he says, you know, Israel's like a partridge in a snare. They're like a mouse in a trap, that they're boxed in. They got the wilderness on one side. They're a slow-moving caravan. They got the sea on the other side, that there's, there's no place to go, and they are completely outmatched. There is no chance, no chance, humanly speaking, that they are going to extricate themselves from this situation. 
that they need help from the outside. Again, we've said that a lot. Now, I think that their emotion, our first example of fear, 1410, that the people feared greatly. Uh, in that way, they did have an appropriate, uh, they, they did understand what was about to happen to them. They saw, well, this is not good. Uh, here we are, we're, we're, we're completely shut in, we're hemmed in, and so they are, they are terribly afraid. And what they do is when the circumstances press on on the people of God, one thing we're to see is what, what, what is squeezed out of them here. What comes out of them is a very immature faith. You see, when I was reading this aloud on, to the staff on Monday, I, I laughed out loud. You say, read verse 11, right? The people of Israel said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done in bringing us out of Egypt? In other words, you say, there's sarcasm in the Bible, right? Is there, not enough, is there no space for tombs in Israel so you brought us out into the wilderness to have tombs here? Uh, in other words, this is a very immature faith. Life's intimidating, yeah, there's much to be afraid of. And when we're afraid and we're intimidated, what can come out of us is an immature faith that uh, really uh, wants to give up and, and, and blame others. And that's exactly, there's infighting, right? right? You, Moses, you're the problem. So there's infighting, there's an immature faith. Verse, I think we're to see, uh, in contrast to that, uh, Moses now, I, I have, you know, some commentators are very harsh on Moses in the Exodus narrative, so I'm quite sympathetic to the guy, and here's one of his great moments, right? That his faith in the moment of crisis is not an immature faith, but he does the right thing, and he reminds God's people who's in charge. Think of God. He preaches, right? It's a mature faith, and I guess the point we're supposed to see here is God's people, yes, humanly speaking, they haven't got a shot, and they're afraid, and they're intimidated, rightly so. And when that happens to, to us, what can be squeezed out of us is a very immature faith of, of blaming others and uh, really not thinking at all of the Lord versus a mature faith. Now, where does this intersect with a congregation like ours today? And uh, a few weeks ago, we had the staff lunch, and we brought in some Christian counselors just talking to us. It seems, you know, all of us know we, we either feel a great deal of anxiety ourselves, or we know someone who's really struggling with anxiety. And the question was really raised, like, what do, what, what's going on here with, in, in, in these anxious times? And I thought what they, one of the things they said was quite profound. They said, we've been taught to see so much these days as a threat, that you think about it, say, yeah, I, I, I turn on the news and people who think differently than me are a threat, and people who look differently than me are a threat, and uh, you know, with, this is a person who's gonna make me sick, we've talked a lot about that, seeing other people as, as uh, you know, vectors of disease, and it's a terrible way to go through life thinking everything is threatening to you. And I think if we're not careful, we're gonna be a bit like the Israelites here, just say, wow, that, you know, we're, we Christians are on the outside, everything's not going our way, everybody's a threat to us, we're completely overpowered, and we start to you know, bicker among ourselves. Instead of being called back right, to, to a real faith here, as Moses said, to say, wait a second, uh, we're the people of God. And yeah, there are disappointing things in the world, uh, but it's okay because we know who we are. Now, another side of this, I think, is that there's a point of realization for a lot of us where we believe in a, real, a very real way that we are shut in. That we're not shut in by Egyptians, we're not shut in by a desert, we're not shut in by a sea, but we're, we're, we're shut in by our own bondage to sin and our own situation. 
that we put our hope in circumstances and in other people. We come out thinking, you know, the world is at our disposal. And you get going down the line and you're thinking, you know, I really don't have that much control. That my circumstances have routinely disappointed me. Other people, even, even the best people in my life have disappointed me. And in a very real way, I'm boxed in. And at that point, we ask, what is precisely squeezed out of us? So we'll see in a moment. But God's people, point number one, God's people from a human perspective face insurmountable odds. They can't get out of this by themselves. As up to this point, we've learned that lesson clearly. They can't self-actualize. They're hemmed in like a, like a partridge in a snare. Now, bold heading number two, I wish I would have said something different. You see, my sermon notes are due Friday morning, and then I th- think of something Friday evening. And so, but you, you, you have what you have. So uh, this is what I should have said is that we tend to think when this is us, a lot like these Israelites, when, when life is hard and disappointing and it looks like, you know, all is lost, we put God in the dock, right, to use the, the Lewis. You know, God's out to lunch, so to speak. He's forgotten us. Uh, where is he? Why is my life so hard? And we should see in all this that God is there all along, isn't he? Have a look at the, when, when Matthias started reading, 13 and verse 17. Did you catch that? When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Say, that's a, a startling... In other, you picture your map, right? They're down in Egypt, and there's a clear path right up to the promised land. Real easy. Short journey. You go right up through Gaza. That's the land of the Philistines. You're, you're right there. And God says, I, I, didn't, I didn't lead the people on the shortest possible route because they're not spiritually mature enough. God knew in advance of 14, 11, and 12 he said, if they go straight up, they're going to have to really trust me and have, you know, they're, they're going to be facing a big battle from the people and the land. So what God does is he leads them on a circuitous route, knowing all along what his people need. And more than that, 21 and 22, all right, very famous scene here. The Lord went before Israel by day in a pillar of cloud and that led them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart, did not depart from the people of God. God is with his people. That in these terrible circumstances where there's no odds, humanly speaking, that they're going to triumph, where they're feeling intimidated by all that's coming in around them, right? You say, well, this isn't going my way, and that's not going my way, and I'm disappointed about this, and I'm disappointed that God's people are backed in. God says, I'm right there. I'm guiding you. I'm with you. In 19 and 20, you may have glossed over this, 19 and 20 of chapter 14. So as the Egyptians are coming in, you know, they're moving at great speed, Israel's trapped. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Do you see what God does? He's leading them. And at the point where there's going to be, this doesn't look good, there's going to be a great attack, God moves to the, he becomes the rear guard. He says, don't worry, literally, I've got your back. And what is so amazing about it, say, the enemy is so close, but not close at all. 
The Egyptians are right there for the plunder, but never, never really close. Why? Because God knows what his people need. He's protecting us. And I think today some of us need to revisit this truth. That you've had some sad things the last year, six months, last month. That your personal lives are not going the way that you want them to. You've had some real friction maybe in your intimate relationships. Your job is imperiled based on what's happening economically. You're really intimidated by, as many of us maybe ought to be, about things like inflation and long-term planning, and, and, and we're very scared. And it feels like we go to the mindsets, feels like we're losing, that we're going to turn on God or think God is out to lunch. Say, if you're in Jesus, God is right there with you. He's guiding his church. He's guiding us by day and by night. He does not sleep. He's hemming us in. Yeah, maybe, maybe the world is dangerous. Maybe there are people out to get us. But God, God has our rear guard that he's there. He's protecting you. He'll see you through. And that is something we must revisit again and again. So two points so far. Chapter 14, God's people, no shot in their flesh. No shot to self-actualize, to liberate themselves. But God does not leave them. He knows what they need. In fact, he knows what they need to mature their faith and that he's got them protected. The right thing at the wrong time is the wrong thing and God's timing is perfect. Now, point number three, uh, what actually is, is the right way? And what we're gonna witness is what we could call a theology of rest and faithful presence. So if I'm an Israelite, you think of yourself there in the desert, you don't have many options. Uh, I think option number one Option number one, again, verses 11 and 12, uh, is to fold. Uh, we wish we were back in bondage. Let's just go back to the way things were. At least we're not going to die. Let's allow the, the Egyptians to take us back and we'll continue to be slave labor. And I would call this, again, this option is, is folding. Uh, we're going to, to give in. Uh, we're we're going to go back to bondage. And again, where does this cross our congregation, do you think? And in a way that's scary, I know this is true in my life, why is it sometimes that I prefer bondage? You know, you all people in your life say, wow, I just, you know, why do we, can, you know, that proverb, like a, like a dog returning to its vomit, so a fool repeats his folly. Say, there's something about sin that's addicting, that we love our selfish impulses, that we go back again and again and again. And here, I think, in a, in a way, this line of, it's not worth it. It's just not worth it to follow God, to, to, to stand up and to, to live for him. And I, I just want to give in to the culture and just, you know, play the game and not take God that seriously. I'm just going to fold. Say, God does not want his people to fold. So I've been reading this week about what the Puritans called the mortification of sin. You say, are we fighting against our sin? You know, fighting against our, uh, you know, our, the spiritual enemy of, of the devil and his demons. Say, that's where the life is, that the Christian is always struggling against, uh, against sin and against bondage, knowing that our sinfulness is so real that we can prefer bondage like these Israelites did. Oh, it's just not worth it. Take me back. So could they fold? Evidently, they could have folded and went back to bondage. Option number two not explicit in the text, but you have to believe there were some who, who wanted to fight. And later in Jewish history, this 
very much becomes the case with other imperial powers. So you think of the Maccabean Revolt and later the Jewish Revolt of the, you know, 66 to 72, that the Jews knew, say, we've got no chance against the Romans, but at least we're going to throw stones at the tank and, uh, you know, go down fighting. So, I mean, this impulse would have been in a lot of people say, okay, we're hemmed in, let's take up whatever we have and let's, let's, let's fight them and, and we'll go down fighting. Now, where this, I think, intersects with a church like ours is that we can think that we're in a fight. I think a lot of American evangelicalism over the last uh, you know, 40 or 50 years, particularly through the language of a culture war, has not been that ha healthy. Uh, it really has not been that biblical. You see, if we think of ourselves in a war, then that means that we have other people who are our enemies, uh, that we're out to get them. Uh, that we're fighting others, and so, you know, we are on the wrong side of an issue, or we're outnumbered. I mean, let's face it, the, you know, having the kind of faith that we do, um, we, we are not a, a moral majority. We, we are not a majority of any kind. We're a small little group of people that most of the world thinks is weird because we acknowledge Jesus as king. So if we view ourselves as right, we just got to pass the right legislation, let's just outnumber the other side, 51-49, and let's try to, you know, we got to squeeze out the opponent here, and we're in a great culture war. So do, do, do we see ourselves as fighting? And I'd say, no, we're, we're not in competition with anybody. We don't view other people as enemies. So what's the option then? We, we could fold. They could have folded and went back to bondage. They could have fought uh, knowing they would lose or thirdly, and this is, I think, the thrust of our narrative, right? 13 and 14 is really the, the, the key point, if you remember nothing else. Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. Do you see that? The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. See, it's not quite a, a theology of passivity, but actually what we're doing is we're standing firm in the Lord. We're his people, that we trust him, that we're, we're, we're in him. Uh, that this, friends, and some of us, you know, the commentators will make the connection here. Do you see how this is the gospel? This is very close to something like Romans chapter 4 and verse 5. You know, to the one who does not work, but trusts in the one who justifies the ungodly, to him it's reckoned as righteousness to the one who doesn't work. That's what Moses is saying. People of God, don't be afraid. Stand firm in God. Wait and watch his salvation. You can't get yourselves out of it, but God will deliver. He knows what's best for his people. You rest in him. It's grace. It's grace. It's God coming in and pulling the people out as they trust him, even in the hard and intimidating circumstances of life. And by the way, <laughs> you see... You see how God takes down the chariot? The great piece of technology? The great human sophistry to develop the great nuclear bomb? The great plane? And you see what God uses? The wind and the water. You take that. Very easy for God. And it's done. He liberates the people as they watch. God is at work. It is, friends, the gospel that he delivers them. And this crossing through, right, that this crossing through comes very near to us when we think about how it's taken up in the New Testament. That over and over again, we're to read the Red Sea episode as what happens when we become Christians. 
you know, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where we started this series, Paul says, you know, when the Israelites crossed the Red Sea, you say, think about it. He said, when they crossed the Red Sea, they were baptized into Moses. Paul connects the crossing of the Red Sea to baptism. It makes perfect sense. On the one side, right, on, on, on the one side, they're this way for you, right? On the one side, uh, right to left, left to right, this side. On the one side, there's bondage. You're hemmed in, right? Not by de- desert and Egyptians. You're hemmed in by your own selfishness and all the disappointments of the world. Uh, this is an intimidating, fearful place to be. God reaches down, brings the people across. He brings them through the water and says, you're my people and you're free in me. I'll be your God and you'll be my people. Can you see that's exactly what happens in Jesus, over here, we're doing our own thing. God puts forth Jesus and says, look, he's, he's paid it all, and you cross through the waters of baptism, and you're up over here. You're in the people of God. You're established. You're in the kingdom. And say so the parallels, right, keep going. Uh, you know, John chapter 5, verse 24, I think a very good verse for small children to learn maybe their first verse. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, he, do, he does not come into judgment, but is, but is passed from death to life. You say, I think older versions, he's crossed over from death to life. The one who trusts in Jesus and his word has crossed over from the bondage, has been brought through the waters by the gracious hand of God and established as the people of God in freedom. There's something else that'll you know, give you goosebumps back to chapter 14 and, and verse 11. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord. Now, I'm no Hebraicist, so you rely on the commentators here to tell us the truth. But we know this, I think, to be the truth when we think about it. The word salvation here, etymologically, right, is connected to Yeshua. Yeshua, God saves, which in, when anglicized is Jesus. You could read this as saying something like, if you're not stand firm, watch what God does through Jesus. They say you're not to fold. You're not to give in to the bondage and give in to the world, though you're outnumbered and though it's intimidating and though you might feel like you're losing and there's no chance. You're certainly not to fold, but to wage war in your own way against your bondage. You're not to fight. Say we don't have enemies as Christians. Other people are not our enemies, but what we are to do is trust in the God, right? Not in our works, but trust in the one who justifies the ungodly and that faith is reckoned as righteousness. Now, you're not a Christian today. And we're very glad you're here. There's always non-Christians here today. You think, oh, you're reading about the crossing of the Red Sea. And uh, you're not a Christian today, but maybe you feel a bit like these Israelites. That life is a very intimidating and anxious place right now. And there are a lot of threats out there. And you say, I don't know where. I'm looking down the long road of my life. And, and quite frankly, I see, I, see no way, I see no way out. That I've got way too much to do. I've been way too disappointed. I'm way too broken. Um, I, 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 I have no hope. You see, there is hope. There is all the hope that you ever will need in the Savior that God put forth in Jesus, that you can trust in him. You say, no, your problems all of a sudden you know, become easier. Not so, but what you'll, you'll find is that God, in a very real way, he's your rear guard. He's got you. So he's going to guide you through, and all of a sudden, those mundane things in life, the intimidating things, will be opportunities for you to be an ambassador for the eternal king. And I hope today that you don't 
care what other people would think, or maybe your own pride from denying Jesus for years, that the Spirit of God would move you to such a place to say, you know what, I need, I need Jesus. I want to commit my life to Jesus. I, I, I need him and his protection. I want to live for him. Say, no better time than this Thanksgiving to say, thank you for the king. Thank you for Jesus. And I surrender to him. Now, Christian, for you. Again, maybe a lot today to feel like this, that we're being hemmed in, that our churches are declining. We don't like what's happening. We're told that everything's a threat. This is a real lesson for us. We don't need to be afraid. Fear not. Stand firm. God does the work. Look what he's done in Jesus. Delight in him. He's got us. We're to represent him and to all those that he wants to bring home, right? That he will do that through our example and through our witness. So I'll invite Jim up to think about that this week. Lord, thank you for buying us back. We had no chance. We can't work ourselves out. We can't work our, ourselves you say, well, on our record, the, the things that we've done. There's no amount of good things we can do to erase that record. That you, There's nothing we could possibly do that would impress you. So, Lord, we thank you for reaching down to us in our weakness when we're hemmed in by our own, shut in by our own sin like the partridge in the snare that you've reached down and you've pulled us through the waters. You've established us on the other side. Lord, help us to see that difference, the crossing over from death to life, that we're your people. And Lord, in the disappointments of life, to say you're right there guiding us by day and by night that you don't rest that you know what's best for us and that we, if we're smart, we would use the tough things in, in, in life not to um, you know, have opportunities for an immature faith, but rather a, a Moses-like mature faith to say, wait a second here, we stand firm in the faith. God does the work. We rest in him. Use us to a broken and hurting world, Lord, to bring in all those who are yours for Christ's sake. Amen.